Well, hey, good morning, Harvest. Can we uh, thank our praise team for leading us in worship this morning? They do an amazing job for 9 a.m., don't they? And uh, I'm so appreciative of them this morning, maybe more than most mornings. I live in downtown Grand Haven, adjacent to the beer tent. And uh, I just thought tonight's, last night's music was nowhere near what we just got to experience. So sanity check as we start. How many were in downtown Grand Haven last night? Okay. Uh, how many would be anywhere but downtown Grand Haven last night? Okay. I didn't say who was saying and not. That's for you guys to decide. Um, but if you were down in Grand Haven last night watching the fireworks, uh, as wonderful as they were, uh, that's not the best part of your weekend. Even though they could make those certain fireworks come out in heart shape, I have no idea how they do that. See, I was paying attention. But that is not the best part of your weekend. We have the privilege this morning of having a pastor friend in with us to uh, teach you this morning, Ian Hales. He and his wife, Sarah, are from Durham, Canada. So this is a new experience for us here in Spring Lake. A Canadian is actually going to preach to us this morning. So you're going to have to pay really close attention so you follow what he's talking about, okay? So just just be paying attention. But uh, we have the privilege this week, and it is really a joy. We do a uh, regional pastor's retreat once a year this year, uh, this afternoon through Wednesday morning, with a lot of like-minded churches around Michigan, some from Indiana. This year, Ian and his wife, Sarah, are down. It's a a privilege to spend time with them and get to know them. They planted their church the same time we did. I think they were a month before us in 2010. And uh, Ian is a gifted, gifted communicator of God's word. Please welcome Ian Hales this morning. Thanks, Dave. Well, thank you for that, and I will try to dull down the accent for you so you can understand what I'm saying. Um, No, it is really an honor and a privilege to be with you, and it's always a privilege to open up God's Word, so let's do that together. Let's open up to 2 Samuel chapter 12, and uh, before I dive into God's Word, let me just say a few things. It it really is a joy to be with you this morning, and it's it's an honor and a privilege to be in the house of the Lord, and... uh, um, by the way, if you need a Bible, I mean, this is, I didn't do this last night, so this is new right now. If you need a Bible, do you just put your hand up? Is that what you going, what's going on? Maybe get a Bible across to you? Yeah, there you go. I'm just trying to help out. Uh, put your hand up. We'll make sure a Bible gets across to you, and that would be a help this morning. We're going to dive into God's Word. That's why we're here, uh, to meet with the Lord through His Word. But I just want to let you know how encouraged I am. I'm privileged to be here. It's been such a joy already for my wife and I, Sarah, to um, spend some time with your pastors, Pastor Dave, Pastor Cal, and their wives. And uh, we've been so blessed already in the short period of time we've been here, and so encouraged by uh, their love for the Lord, their love for the church. And uh, I just had just, you know, for half an hour, before coming out here, just the sweetest conversation and time with your your praise team. And um, I just want you to know the heart of this church has been such a blessing to me already. The way they love the Lord, the way they love um, the church, it it is a privilege to be a part of the the family of God, is it not? Amen? And and it's a joy um, to even allow Canadians to be a part of that. And so I really am grateful to be here. And um, I thought just to be culturally relevant, to maybe bridge this cultural gap, I would start um, by maybe kind of bringing you into something maybe somewhat controversial, but something that would maybe benefit you, a little bit of um, U.S. political scandal. Why not, right? To start off the morning. And I'm not talking about our current political climate. Not at all. I want to bring you back into um, some historic, political realities, I want to bring you back to, in fact, the early 1970s, 
the U.S. and the world had watched as a political scandal began to unfold in center, on center stage when President Richard Nixon, you're probably very familiar with this story, in his re-election campaign, he had determined to go above and beyond what was normal, what was acceptable, and what was actually legal What's known famously as the Watergate scandal, it was an attempt to break in and to wiretap the Democratic National Committee headquarters to illegally obtain inside information into their campaign. After the burglars were caught red-handed, an elaborate cover-up ensued by Nixon and his staff. But as time went on, one aide after another began to cooperate with the authorities, and Nixon's guilt actually seemed painfully obvious. It was clear to everybody that he had done wrong, that he had broken the law, in fact. But interestingly, his undoing was actually his own fault. Ironically, he had installed recording devices in the Oval Office and private offices, as well as cabinet rooms, catch this, in an attempt to protect himself and his legacy. These recordings were discovered, and recordings of his discussions about Watergate were unearthed, and that would force Nixon to actually resign. But though Nixon appeared guilty, though it was clear that he had abused his power, that he had selfishly sacrificed the careers and political lives of so many people around him, and though he would likely face criminal charges, in 1974, President Gerald Ford issued an unconditional and full pardon that would immunize him from any crimes he had committed or may have committed or taken part in as president. Now, in what seemed to be a shocking decision, Nixon received what he did not deserve. He, he actually received what didn't seem right or appropriate or fitting based on the circumstances. And in what frustrated many, what he actually received was something incredible, something amazing, something marvelous. He received the gift of grace. And you know what, in the face of all of our sin and in the midst of the scandals of our lives, in the midst of the destruction that we can cause self and others because of our own selfishness in sin and in the attempts to cover up our sin, sometimes at all costs, God comes to us in our shame. God comes alongside of us in our guilt and he offers to us what we do not deserve, what doesn't seem right, but he offers us something marvelous and something amazing. He offers to us as well this same incredible gift of grace. And I want to dive deep into this picture of grace this morning with you, and I want to do that by looking at the life of David, a particular event in the life of David in 2 Samuel 12. And, you know, I think this is really important for us because we celebrate grace in the church, and rightly so. We sing about grace. We love the grace of God. Amen? Amen. And yet, sometimes I think we get overly familiar with grace. Grace loses that wow factor. We're no longer awestruck by, by the magnitude of God's grace, by the amazingness of God's grace. And I think one of the reasons for that is because we miss the nuances of God's grace, 
we have a shallow or a narrow understanding of God's grace. And this story in particular helps us see some fascinating nuances of God's grace that I hope this morning will remind you of how truly amazing the grace of God is, not only in the life of David, but in your life and mine. So I want to look at what is so amazing about grace this morning. And the first thing that we see from God's word is this. Here's what's so amazing about grace. Grace pursues me in my sinfulness. Grace pursues me in my sinfulness. And I want to look at just the first sentence here of chapter 12. And I promise you in the the coming points, we're going to look at far more than just, just one sentence. But this is so important. Here's what it says in chapter 12, verse 1. It says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now this here, this one sentence, brings us into the context and the story of what's taking place in the life of David. And if if you're taking notes or you're highlighting in your Bible, if you mark your Bible up, here's the word that I, I want you to make note of in that one sentence. It's the word sent. Now, it seems insignificant on face value. You kind of of glance over it. You can read past it really quickly. But this word sent is vitally important to the author of 2 Samuel in unfolding the story and the events that are taking place in the life of David. You see, this one word sent is used here very specifically to draw you back into chapter 11. And in chapter 11, we have the reality of David's sin put on full display for all the world to see. And this word sent is used 12 times in chapter 11, the preceding chapter. But here's what I want you to take note of. Every time this word is used in chapter 11, here's what's going on. It is describing the nature of David's sin. David looks out and he sees this woman bathing on her rooftop, a woman who is married to another man, in fact, a friend of his, and a man who is playing a pivotal role in his own military. And he sees her, and he wants her for himself, and so he sent for her. He commits adultery with her. She gets pregnant. She sent to David to inform him that she had conceived and was with child. He sent then for the captain of his army and sent for the husband. You see, all of this word sent is reminding us in the previous chapter of how David committed a heinous sin to commit adultery and then to murder the husband of the woman that he slept with. Sent describes the nature of David's sin, his pursuit of sin, and his desire to cover up his sin in the previous chapter. But what's so fascinating here is that God takes this one little word, and while we see that humanity, listen, sinfully pursues wickedness, God's grace lovingly pursues the sinner. While David sent for sin and to conceal his sin, God sent to pursue the sinner. It's an incredible reminder of the grace of God in our lives. How amazing that in the height, listen, of rebellion, think about what David had done, the grievousness of his sin. How amazing is it that God does not wash his hands of us? Now, what we learn here is that God passionately pursues his children. He is intimately engaged in their lives for their good. We see here the vigilance of grace. A grace that pursues and exposes the sinner in his sin. And here's the lesson that you and I need to learn from this. Listen, that God will not allow his servants to remain comfortable in sin, but he will relentlessly and ruthlessly expose it lest we settle into it. See, God loves us so much that he refuses to let us settle into our sin. 
to be destroyed by our own sin. Maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're kind of taking stock of your own life. I hope you are. You may love yourself and you may love your sin. You may live actually for a time pursuing it above all else. You may spend yourself even covering it up so that nobody knows what you're really doing in secret. You may be hiding it. You may be trying to free yourself from the shame of it, maybe thinking even that it is out of sight, the sight of God, but I want you to hear this. God loves you so much that he will come after you. You know what's amazing about this story? This prophet Nathan has come to David, but do you know how long ago David committed the sin of adultery and murder? It had been about a year. About a year of David covering up and concealing his sin, trying to hide his sin, and all of a sudden, seemingly out of the blue, maybe David thought he'd get away with this. Maybe David thought this would never be exposed, nobody would ever really know what had gone on. God, in his loving kindness and in grace, is pursuing him, and he comes after him. What great comfort there is for every single child of God and listen, it may not be comfortable or enjoyable when God comes after you and comes after your sin, but I want you to consider the flip side of this. What would happen and where would you be if God simply left you in your sin this morning? What if grace did not pursue you? What if God simply abandoned us to ourselves? Maybe you can just begin this morning by asking the simple question, is God trying to pursue me this morning? In his grace, is he trying to pursue me this morning? Maybe even a more pointed question than that is simply this. In what area of my life, in what sin area of my life is God pursuing me this morning? Now, you say, well, how do I know what area God is trying to kind of poke and prod into my life and expose in my life? That's a fair question. Here's what I want to suggest to you. This needs to become the normal process of your Christian life if it's not already. You need to be constantly examining your life and allowing the Lord to reveal things in your life. It's part of the way we grow in the Christian life. He says, so how, do I, how do I do that? Let me give you first a one simple way to begin by doing uh, this this morning. Just simply pray right now. Just before the Lord. Just say, God, is there something in my life that needs to be exposed and brought into the light? God, is there anything I'm concealing right now I'm trying to hide that... God, I, I need revealed. And God, if, 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 if you would, God, in your grace and kindness, would you, would you reveal that to me this morning? Grace pursues me in my sinfulness. That's the grace of God. It's, it's so beautiful. That's what's so amazing about grace. Secondly, here's what's amazing about grace. Grace persuades me in my blindness. Grace persuades me in my blindness. Here, this prophet is sent to David to expose his sin, but I want you to see how he does that. This prophet Nathan comes to David, and he has access to the throne of David and the ear of David, and he begins by telling him this little parable, this little story. Here's what he says. He says, he came to him, and he said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. 
But he took the poor man's lamb and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now, Nathan shows up. He tells this short but pointed story. This rich man had everything. He had all the resources. He had all the lambs he could possibly want at his disposal. And yet, he takes this poor man's lamb, this poor man's lamb who had become like one of his family members, this little lamb that this man loved dearly. It was precious to him. It was endeared to this man's heart. He takes this man's lamb that's like a daughter to him, and he sacrifices it to give to this guest who has come to visit with him. David's response here is utter outrage. He is so furious, he declares that this man actually deserves to die. Now, the story itself, just at face value, is fascinating, but I, I want you to pay more attention to the strategy of Nathan here. That's, that's what we're more interested in and concerned about. I want you to see the wisdom of Nathan and of the Spirit of God put on display. I want you to see the winsomeness in God's plan to grab a hold of the heart of David. It's really about the method of God's grace here. One author said this about this approach. He said this, Nathan's sword was with an inch of David's conscience before David knew that Nathan had a sword. He has told the story and he has brought David right into the picture. And what's so fascinating here is what Nathan didn't do. I want you to consider this for a moment. You see, Nathan steered clear of the full frontal assault kind of approach, right? Think about it. Oftentimes, when, when we know we've been sinned against or we see sin, our first line of attack is to go right at the problem, is it not? And we go the full frontal assault, and that's what Nathan could have done. He could have walked right into David's throne and said, David, the Lord has revealed to me what you actually did. You are an adulterer. You're a murderer. But he doesn't do that. Why not? Well, I, I think... Nathan knew something that we can take note of in our communication of truth sometimes, that, listen, pride activates the inner lawyer. You know what I mean by that? We all have this inner lawyer within ourselves. You know, when we're confronted of, uh, of our sin, when somebody brings it to our attention, and sometimes when they do so in a very direct way, what's our natural response? Our inner lawyer is activated, and we jump to our own defense, don't we? Am I alone in that? Like two of you are with me. So what we do, our, our sinful flesh does that. We're like, how dare you? Oh yeah, let me tell you about, about your sin. Or here, here's why this was okay. We justify, right? We blame shift. And so instead of calling him an adulterer and a murderer, he says, let me just tell you about a little situation, David. Let me tell you a little story. And here's what you need to see him doing. Here's the winsomeness of God's plan and God's strategy. Listen, he is drawing him into the case in which David will become his own judge. Do you see that? That is brilliant. Brilliant. 
You know, it's amazing how blind we can be to our own blindness, isn't it? We're blind to our own sin. Oftentimes, we just, we, we just don't see our sin. But what's really scary is how blind we can be to our own blindness. We, we don't even see how blind we are. To we don't even see how poorly we see ourselves and we see our sin. And it's amazing how God's grace can so gently and profoundly open our eyes. And in this moment where Nathan has David right where he wants him, you can almost see David's enraged, he's incensed, he's declared a judgment on this man, and here's what Nathan does. He looks at David in the eyes. You can almost picture the scene. You can almost see it in your mind's eye. He looks at David, and he says to David, David, you are the man. And instantly, instantly, you can imagine the room goes silent. You know, the awesomeness of God's grace is that if God determines to bring you back to repentance, what chance does your resistance and rebellion have against that? That God will break through the hardest of hearts. Time is no issue. Power and authority are no issue for God. God can break through the hardest resistance, the most stubborn heart. You say, oh, I need more of that in my life. Listen, I, as Christians, we need to get used to this. We should long for this. We should be praying every single day, God, I want this kind of conviction. I want you to break me of my sin. I don't want my sin in my life at all. God, I want you to rip it out. So bring on the conviction, right? right? Most of the times we hate conviction. Like, I don't, I don't like the feel of that. It doesn't feel good. Christians, loved ones, we need to get used to saying, God, give me more of that because the more conviction I experience, the more grace I can experience from you. And so I want to encourage you to be praying for that regularly, to read the scriptures in light of that. When you, when you sit under the word of God, I hope you walk into church in the mornings and you say, God, amongst other things, you pray, God, God, allow your conviction to settle in on my heart. God, grip my heart. Uh, show me my sin. Make me more like Jesus like we just sung about. Amen. Let me give you one more way in which you can do this. Not just when you open the word of God or you sit under the word of God, but I want to encourage you to have people in your life who function like Nathan. Yes, you have a conscience, and yes, you have the spirit of God, but we all need people in our lives who can point out sin in our lives. You should have friends like that. I imagine most of you are in small groups. You should be wanting that, desiring that, inviting that. And some of you are like, well, I need some more of that. Good for you. Right, ask your spouse, right? You want to know what sin you're struggling with? Ask your spouse if you're married. You really want to know what sin you're struggling with? Test, test, test. Ask your kids. Okay, I did this this week. This was a, this was, man, this was hard. But, I, you know, I met with my son. One of my sons is nine years old, and we're going out for a, a Father Sunday. We're just, just me and him together for the day, and we're driving out somewhere. We're going to have a fun day, and as we're driving out, we're talking, and I'm, I'm just asking him about his life and just talking about, hey, son, you know, what are the kind of things you need to work on this year? What do you think the Lord is teaching you this year? What, do you, what does he want to grow you in this year? And he's, he's talking, he's explaining some things, and he's saying some really sweet things. And I'm like, son, I'm going to pray for you about those things, and I, I want to help you in those ways. And I say, you know, you know, I need to ask my son the same question. And so I turn to my, my son, nine years old, and I say, son, what do you think dad needs to work on and grow in this year? What are you seeing in my life that you think God's not pleased with, that God would want me to work on? He thinks for a moment, he turns to me and says, dad, he's like, oh, slow to anger. I said, well, that's convenient since you're the source of most of my anger. 
<laughs> I, I didn't really say that, but I thought it for a moment. I, you know, I, I really, I looked at my son, I said, son, you know what, that is a, you're right. I can see that in my, my heart right now. I, I, I'm getting angry too quickly. And uh, I said, thank you, thank you. And I said, you know what I said to I said, I said, Josh, I said, you know, would you pray for me in that? He said, yeah, Dad, of course I will. I said, I said, son, I want you to know something too. I said, if you see that happening in my life, you have permission at any time to simply say to me, Dad, Dad, you need to be slow to anger. And that afternoon, okay, he, just, like, he, took, this, he took this seriously. Like we're sitting around as a family and my four-year-old son who had missed a nap was spazzing out and I'm starting to get, you know, I'm a little frazzled and my voice, you know, my, my temperature is kind of turning up and my volume is kind of getting up and my son Josh looks at me and goes, Dad, slow to anger. I said, how dare you speak to me like that? I'm just kidding. <laughs> Go to your room, don't you ever talk to me like that again. No, I, I never, uh, I, you know what, in the moment, you know what, instantly, Instantly, I felt the conviction of the Spirit of God. It stopped me dead in my tracks. And I, in the moment, listen, repented. I thanked my son. And I said, son, thank you. That's so helpful. I want to be more like Jesus Christ. I want to be slow to anger. And can I just encourage you, listen, you need to have people in your life who are going to do that for you. And allow that, invite that, ask for that, and respond appropriately to that when it comes your way. You see, it is the grace of God is so amazing that persuades us in our blindness. Thirdly, notice this, it's the grace of God that punishes me in my foolishness. You're like, wait a second, grace punishes me in my foolishness. That, that doesn't really seem to go together. Grace punishes me? Yeah. We often don't think of discipline and, and consequences as grace, but I want you to see in the life of David, that's exactly what it is. It's the grace of God that comes alongside us. And listen to what it says in the second half of verse 7, after David says, Nathan, uh, Nathan says to David, you are the man. He says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, do you, know, do you not see how gracious I was to you, David? I gave you everything. You are not lacking in any way. I, I, I lavished my grace upon you. Listen, which one of us cannot say the same thing? He appeals to the grace that he has already received. And then look what he says in verse 9. Why have you despised the word of God? Here's the accusation to David. To do what is evil in his sight, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. David, after all the grace I have shown you, look at what you did. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. There's the consequence. There's the punishment. These verses, by the way, give us insight as to why the rest of 2 Samuel and the life of David unfolds the way it does. David's life would never be the same after this. 
He, he would face incredible turmoil in his family. His own son would try to kill him. In many ways, parts of his life would unravel, and you can trace it all the way back to this right here. And what's so fascinating about this is that he, he brings David's sin into the light and he wants David to see how ugly his sin really is. Here's what I find so interesting about this. Remember, David had gone a year um, without acknowledging and confessing uh, his sin before the Lord, which means this, that somewhere down the line, David's sin had become somewhat normal to him. You know, it had become the new normal. Isn't it amazing how quickly this can happen in our lives? Something that, that is so hideous, something that is so ugly, something we thought we would never do can actually become something we get very comfortable with. You can learn to live with it. It's just the new reality. It's really not that bad. My wife and I, we lived in California for a few years. That's where I went to seminary a number of years ago, like 13, 14 years ago now. And um, when we moved to California, I... Um, we, we, we were broke. We didn't have anything. We were kind of taking a big step of faith. We knew we wanted to be trained for ministry rightly. We knew we wanted to be equipped so we could serve the body of Christ well. And, uh, and yet, we didn't have any resources. We went down to California. We had nothing. God provided in abundance for us. And uh, he did so through the church that we were a part of. And it was one of the greatest lessons that we ever learned. And, uh, and, and we were so blessed by the church family. It's actually impacted our lives and our church in so many ways. But one of the things people did really quickly was they rallied around us and they provided some of the basic needs. Food, um, um, furniture, things like that. And, and we didn't have a vehicle. And uh, we, we were given a number of vehicles while we were there. Um, really, really kind people just donating their vehicles to us. By the way, when somebody gives you a vehicle, they usually don't give you their best vehicle. So we got a lot of beaters. And we were thankful. We were thankful. But one of my favorite cars we were given uh, was this old beater. It was, it was a Geo Metro. You remember that? Okay. Tiny. Think, if you're like, oh, you, think of a Toyota Yaris, but dumber. Okay. If you have a Toyota Yaris, no offense to you. That's very economical. It's very wise. We had this Toyota Yaris. It had a three-cylinder engine, and it felt like you were zipping around all the time, and it sounded like it in a little go-kart. That's what we were driving around in. Okay? And, and by the way, no power steering, no power brakes, and to make it worse, it was purple. <laughs> we got to give this guy. I remember somebody saying, we want to give you this vehicle. We just want to help you out. I looked at the car. I was like, thank you. I, mean, was, I remember getting it first while I'm driving around. I'm like, I'm embarrassed. Like, this is humiliating. Oh, what am I doing? But, you know, pretty soon, I, I kind of got used to it, and I was just thankful. And actually, it was kind of fun. It's kind of fun zipping around on the freeway beside all of these, these trucks whizzing by you and you fearing for your life. It's kind of exciting. And, and I'll, I'll never forget it. I kind of got used to this car. I'm like, oh, it's not that bad. It's not that ugly. And one day, I drove to Pasadena, California. I was going to a bookstore there. I parked on the side of the curb, walked across the street into the bookstore. And as I walked out, I'll never forget it, I walked out of the bookstore, and I'm staring across the street, and there is my purple Geo Metro. And on either side, bookending my car, is a Lamborghini and a Ferrari. And I went, oh, my car is hideous. You know what? Sometimes we can't see how ugly something is until it's placed against the backdrop of something beautiful. And that's true with our sin. 
And did you notice what Nathan does to David here? He, he puts his sin in relation to his God. And he, he allows David to wrestle with how ugly his sin is when it's viewed against the backdrop of the beauty and the holiness of the God that David says he loves, adores, and worships. Right? And, and by the way, all of our sin, we, we have this tendency to look at our sin as if it's somehow relative to other people's sins, this horizontal view of sin. My sin's not that bad but compared to so-and-so's sin. But all of our sin, when it's viewed against the backdrop of the beauty and the majesty and the holiness of our God, God is hideous and ugly. And he's driving in his grace, he's driving this into the heart of David. You see how he does this in verse 9 and 10? He says, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down your eye. Then he says to him, he says in verse 10, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. You know what he does here? He says, you despise the word of the Lord, which is the same thing as despising, despising the Lord of the word. It's been said that in the moment of our sin, we all become practical atheists. You heard that before? We act as if God doesn't exist. I actually think there's a more helpful way to think about it. I think in the moment of sin, we all become practical gods. We don't act as if God doesn't exist. We just act as if we're the God who deserves to be worshipped. You see, the true significance of sin explains God's anger against sin. David would say in Psalm 51, against you and you alone have I sinned, O God. Yes, he has sinned, as as Nathan points out, against Uriah the Hittite and against Bathsheba, but he has ultimately sinned against God, and that's the same for every one of us. We've all sinned against others. We've all caused damage to others, but fundamentally speaking, we've all sinned against God, first and foremost. We've rebelled against him and his authority in our lives, and it is an act of grace to experience punishment. That's what we need to see here. To know that there are consequences for sin is actually grace. It's what's guarding us and protecting us from sliding further and further into sin. Right? That's why um, we discipline our children, don't we? We're, we're lovingly trying to protect them. We're trying to say, listen, when you sin, it will hurt you. And what I want for you is to not be hurt in greater ways by your sin and by your decisions. You see, discipline and punishment is actually an act of grace that protects the sinner from greater sin. That's why we sing in the, in the old hymn, right? "Twas grace that taught my heart to what? Fear. It's God's grace. It, it protects me. It helps me to walk in the fear of the Lord. You know, sometimes grace is a rod that drives the foolishness of sin from our hearts, and that is a good gift of God. There is always, by the way, in the punishment of God, sometimes we're like, man, these consequences, they're terrible. The punishment hurts. I don't enjoy this. Listen, there's always the reminder in your punishment that it's not nearly as bad as it should be. You realize that? It's only God's grace that our punishment is not more severe. We're not getting what we truly deserve. And that reminds us, fourthly, what's so amazing about grace. Grace pardons me in my guiltiness. It pardons me in my guiltiness. And this is so fascinating. In verse 13, it says this, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He recognizes what he did, who he ultimately sinned against. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. 
The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. David um, deserved death under Jewish law for what he did. Do you realize that? Adultery and murder were capital offenses. But grace here extends a pardon to David. The pardon is actually extended in light of the confession that David utters. Do you notice that? He confessed his sin. Now, it's so simple here, but do not mistake the simplicity of David's confession with the authenticity of David's confession. Sometimes we think that that the more rigorous our repentance is, you know, the more we try to display it, the more tears we shed, the more we cry, the, the, the the longer we lay on our face, you know, that somehow that's going to evoke more grace from God. That's not so. The good news is, is that you don't have to earn God's forgiveness. You don't have to earn the pardon. It's not about how much you do. It's so simple. And in one sense, it's not easy, listen, but it is free and open to everybody. The simplicity here is profound. He simply acknowledges alongside of what the Lord says, what Nathan has pressed into his heart. I have sinned against the Lord. And if you want to see the full extent of David's repentance, if you want to see how he felt, you know, the authenticity kind of unfolded, just read Psalm 51, right? It's powerful. But I want you to see here that this is what God requires of David. It's what God requires of you and me. It's so simple. You're like, my sin, it's so great. My sin, it's so grievous. It doesn't matter how grievous your sin is. I mean, did you commit adultery? Did you commit murder? Even if you did, guess what? It's so simple. You come before God and you acknowledge, I have sinned against you, God. God simply calls all of us to come like David did, to come broken, to come humbled, to come contrite. No excuses, no blame shifting, no yeah, but... Just simply, God, I agree with you. You're right. I've sinned against you. We come like the publican in Luke 18, you know, who, who comes and he beats his chest and he says, woe is me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me. That's what God requires. I'm convinced of this. You know, sometimes we like to try and measure our maturity in the Lord in different ways. And there are different ways to rightly do that. But oftentimes, we miss something significant. We, you know, we, we hold out our spiritual resumes. We say, look how mature I am. Look what I've done for Jesus. Look how many people I've led to the Lord. Look how many disciples I've made. Look at the ministries I'm serving in. I am convinced that one of the greatest measures of Christian maturity is how you respond to the criticism of the word of God in your own life. David is defined in the scriptures as a man, do you know this? A man what? After God's own heart. Even after committing this sin. How's your sensitivity in hearing God's word? How's your sensitivity in, in, in examining your own heart and responding to the conviction? Do you just kind of slough it off? Do you just kind of look uh, over it and look past it and not worry about it? Or do you feel the weight of your sin? Do you see that it was your sin that held Jesus there? And do you allow that to sink deeply into your heart and produce within you a conviction that leads you to a godly sorrow and repentance? The key to all true change and growth in the Christian life, listen, is a humble, repentant heart. 
a humble, repentant heart. To be a man or woman after God's own heart, you don't need to be sinlessly perfect. Isn't that good news? But you must be humbly responsive to the convicting power of God's word and God's spirit in your life. And I want you to, to note the, the assurance excuse me, David experiences here. He says, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. There's great a security and assurance given to David there. It's, it's incredible. Here's the miracle of forgiveness. But what's so profound here is that in the miracle of forgiveness, we lose the wonder of this. We just think, yeah, God forgives sin. I want to remind you, God doesn't wink at sin. You know, God doesn't like saying, ah, it's okay, I'll let that one slide. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. The miracle of God's forgiveness and the pardon that we experience is found in what God does with sin. It doesn't go unpunished. And notice what we see here. David will not die, but look at what verse 14 says. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Here's what he's saying. David, you deserve to die for your sin. You're not going to. You're going to be pardoned for your sin. But because of your sin, your innocent son will die instead of you. Can, can I just point out a pattern that we see um, in the scriptures? Forgiveness is paradoxically, listen, both free and costly at the same time. And without pressing this too far or making too much of this, can I draw a parallel here? Isn't it fascinating here that an innocent son of David would die as a substitute in place of David for, for this grievous sin? Can I just remind you, listen again, not trying to make too much of a leap, but can I just draw this parallel? Isn't it fascinating that when we come to the New Testament, there is another innocent son of David who would die not just to pay for David's sins, but to pay for your sins and mine. You see, our sins are paid for. They are. They're paid for in Jesus Christ. God sends his own son, the son of David, Jesus Christ. He comes himself in the flesh. He becomes the perfect spotless lamb of God, perfectly obeying the law, and then he willingly gives his own life. This is the, the awesome news of the gospel. This is the grace of God for you and for me. God says you deserve to die, but instead I'm gonna send my son to die in your place. And what we celebrate as a church, right, is that Jesus Christ, he did just that. He hung on the cross, and he didn't just suffer a physical death. He suffered spiritually for you and for me. God unleashed a torrent of wrath and judgment that we deserved on his own beloved son so that me and you could be pardoned and set free from our sin. Amen? What a beautiful reminder of the grace of God. God says, you can't pay for your sin. If, if you do, it will be for all of eternity damned in hell. But instead, I will release you and pardon you by sending my own son in your place. And it's because of that awesome reminder of the grace of God that we see how David responds. And here's the call for you and me. What's so amazing about grace? Listen, grace permeates me in my fallenness. It permeates me. It sinks deeply into me. It begins to dominate and control my life. David responds, knowing what God is going to do and what he promised to do, that his son is going to die. And here's what it says he does. It says, the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. 
David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. And then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child. Well, he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me and that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. By the way, what great comfort in that last verse if you've ever lost a child. David's saying, he's saying, listen, I can't raise this child from the dead, but I know one day I'm going to go to him. I'm going to see that child again. David fasts and he prays and this baffles his servants. It actually scares them. They're so confused as to what's going on. And they ask him what he's doing. You know, David is relentlessly praying. And, and he, he essentially says, listen, listen, I, I needed to go fast and pray and pursue the Lord and ask God to intervene. You say, why would he do that after he knew exactly what God promised? He knew that God said his child was going to die. Here's why he did this. Listen, he knows who his God is. You see, what has permeated his heart and mind is that his God is a God of grace and mercy. This is who he knows his God to be. And so he goes before this God. He says, God, I know who you are. I know that you are gracious and your loving kindness surpasses that of anyone in the universe. And he believes so deeply in the grace of God that, that he knows maybe, maybe God, maybe God will not do what he said he would do in this instance Listen, God is a God of grace. Showing grace is his forte. And that means that in all of our fallenness, listen, in all of our sin-soaked lives, in all of our failures, in all of our stumbling, we too can have an incredible hope that God may take all of our brokenness and failure, all of our messes and sin, and that he might extend immeasurable grace to us. You know, God doesn't grant David's plea here, but that doesn't negate the rightness of David's thinking. You see, grace has so gripped him that he realizes God's grace is seen in, in all of his actions, whether he does what we want him to do or not. God always does what is good. He always does what is right. He always acts in line with his character. And this gives hope to every single follower of Jesus Christ, even when we repent of our sins. Listen, we have no reason to expect favor from God. We have no reason to expect mercy and gifts from his hand. But if grace has gripped and permeated you like it had David, you too can walk in hope. You too can worship in the most difficult circumstances of your life, even if the result of your own sin. Don't you love that? David's response is so much like Job's, isn't it? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I know who my God is and he is worthy of all my worship and praise. 
You know, the chapter ends with David getting up and going into battle. We won't look at the rest of it, but just, just listen to this. This is so encouraging. David gets up. He goes into battle like he should have in the first place. And what we see is that God uses David again as the king of Israel to conquer the enemies of God and of Israel. And here's why that's so important. Listen, you may be sitting here thinking, you know what, my sin has rendered me useless in the hands of God. My sin is so great, it's so devastating, it's so destructive, there's no way God could use me to do anything of significance for his glory and for his kingdom. And I want you to see this. God took David and all of his brokenness and all of his mess and all of his sin, and he used him mightily for the glory and honor of his name again. There's such hope here. Because every single one of us is just like David. We need God's grace. Amen? And in God's grace, he wants to take you, and he wants to restore you, he wants to forgive you, and he wants to use you for the glory and honor and fame of his name and for the advancement of the kingdom of his good son, Jesus Christ. You know, Richard Nixon refused grace. In fact... He declared his innocence and spent his life working to make up for all that he had done. He refused to admit what he had done. But one of his top aides, a man by the name of Charles Colson, was brought to his knees by God's grace. He did what David did. He pled guilty. He went to prison. He willingly suffered the consequences of his sin, but he threw himself at the mercy and grace of God. And God would take this man and forgive him and restore him, and he would use him to do so much for the cause of Jesus Christ. Allow God's grace to do its work in you this morning. Allow it to draw you to Christ, to draw you back to him in that beautiful relationship that he has given to you. Allow the, God, the grace of God to remind you that God is not finished with you yet, and he longs to use you for the glory and honor of his son. What's so amazing about grace? We get so much that we do not deserve. We're reminded that God gives us himself. He restores us. He uses us. What a gift. Let's pray. God, thank you for your loving restoration. Thank you for your grace. God, grace that is greater than all of our sin. Thank you for the reminder of how you long to use us. We pray, Father, now that you would bless us and we pray, God, that our hearts would be filled with joy as we respond to you and to your grace. Receive our praise now in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.